We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer, sponsored by the Ahima 22 Global Conference. If you are listening, you and your team belong at the Ahima 22 Global Conference in Columbus, Ohio, October 9th through the 12th. Register at ahima.org. Today's senior healthcare consultant, Colleen Deegan, reports that consultation services will never be the same after October. If you find that depressing, here's good news. Psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick is here to make you feel better. Lori Johnson has our coding report. Aaron George brings us Talk Law. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents your talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who's always willing to share his fries, especially if you've got onion rings, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thanks, Clark. Hold the onion rings. Thanks, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 524th live edition of Talk Tuesday. Good morning, Erica. Wait a minute. I'll take those onion rings. I love them. <laughs> okay. Good morning, yeah. Chuck, and Happy New Year to those who celebrate Rosh Hashanah. Indeed. Happy New Year, and welcome back, Erica. You know, you were missed last Tuesday. Yes, I was in Colorado on vacation, and I missed you, too. Oh, that's so sweet. But I do want to thank healthcare attorney Karen George for substituting for you last Tuesday. By the way, Karen is back today with her talk law segment. So uh, what's the topic of your talk back today? Yes, thank you, Karen, for substituting. And I'm going to talk about influenza today, Chuck. Wow, looking forward to your talkback segment. We have much news to report. And we begin this morning with Tim Bell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And... Yesterday, CMS issued the following statement. Today, in an effort to improve nursing home transparency, safety, quality, and accountability, the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, through the Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services, is making additional data publicly available to provide more information about the ownership of all Medicare-certified nursing homes. This data, well, for the first time, give state licensing officials and state federal law enforcement uh, agencies, researchers, and the public, an enhanced ability to identify common owners of nursing homes across the nursing home locations. And I want to give CMS my best wishes in carrying this out. A huge number of nursing homes across the country are owned by shell companies, most of them with names like limited or limited liability companies or LLCs with names like One Something Drive Operating Company LLC, where the name of the LLC is often the address of the nursing home itself. Many states not only restrict information on the members of LLCs, the owners of many of these companies are in fact LLCs themselves. One of my favorite stories about nursing homes relates to the signing of a Medicare cost report. Every Medicare cost report must be signed, signed as they're completed and under penalty of emergency for under federal penalties. I drafted a report for a client and needed what is called a wet signature to send the report to CMS. I learned that in the case of this facility, the report was sent every year to a post office box and returned, signed, and then returned the same way. CMS has a list of legal names of owners of nursing homes. It's included with its provider data sets on its portal on the internet. The question is, does CMS know who owns the LLC that in turn owns the nursing home? And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday, it's September the 27th, and you're listening to the 524th live edition of Talk Tuesday. Stand by.
Are you ready to create a better world where health is transformed by data and information advances? Then you belong at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference, October 9th through the 12th in Columbus, Ohio. Join over 3,000 innovative healthcare professionals for thought-provoking workshops and networking connections that will last a lifetime. Imagine a better world where health information is transformed by data and you are at the center. Recognize for improving lives because you made sure that the data in any healthcare record was trusted. Find out how to make this happen at AHIMA 22, where you will be convinced that data is the new medicine and the work you do is vital. Register today at the American Health Information Management Association website. That's ahima.org. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Quarter Report with Lori Johnson, and good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, and welcome back, Erica, and hello to our listeners. This morning, I'd like to talk about the International Federation of Health Information Management Associations, or IFHIMA. The website is https://ifhima.org. On September 29th, there is a webinar on ICD-11, Improving Global Health Information Through Better Data Sharing, which explores the adoption of ICD-11. This webinar is not free. The cost is 35 euros or $33.70 at, at today's exchange rate. The IFHIMA 20th Congress will meet in Brisbane, Australia, October 29th, to November 1st, 2023. A call for abstracts has been issued for speaking on a topic, conducting a workshop, or preparing a poster to illustrate achievements or research. The call for abstract closes on October 17th, 2022. Session topics that have been suggested are accreditation and certification, artificial intelligence, clinical documentation integrity or improvement or data integrity, digital health, digital transformation, global workforce, health data quality and analytics, health information governance, privacy and security, health information for patient safety and quality of care, ICD-11, clinical coding and health classifications, and research, education, and training. Abstracts will be reviewed by an international panel, and successful applicants will be notified in February of 2023. Brisbane is a beautiful place. I've been there, and um, October, November is actually springtime in Australia, so the temperatures will be 59 to 70 degrees, so it'll be a nice temperate climate. So if you're looking to uh, explore Australia, think about presenting at the IFHIMA conference. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Lori. I wish I could go. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Coming up next, Talk Law with healthcare attorney Karen George. Talk Law is sponsored by Hitex, dedicated to bringing the most advanced technology and people to assist healthcare professionals at the point of care. Find them at Hitex.com. 
Here now is Karen George. Good morning, Chuck, and welcome back, Erica. So health plans routinely assert that contracted providers must appeal underpayments or denials according to the health plan's internal dispute process. The payer-provider agreement or the provider manuals are the basis for these appeal requirements. The health plan's appeal requirement generally does not apply in instances where the provider does not have a contract with the health plan. In Global Rescue Just LLC versus Kaiser Foundation Health Fund, Inc., the Ninth Circuit for the first time, however, established an exception to this appeal requirement in the context of emergency services rendered to members covered by a Medicare Advantage plan. In these circumstances, exhaustion of administrative appeals is a prerequisite to a provider seeking recovery in court. In this case, Jet Rescue, an air ambulance service provider, transported two Kaiser Medicare Advantage patients who became seriously ill in Mexico to a Kaiser hospital in San Diego. A dispute arose regarding the amount that Kaiser was required to pay Jet Rescue for the services. Kaiser asserted that it was required to pay the same amount that would be due under the Medicare program, whereas Jet Rescue claimed that the Medicare rate did not apply and Kaiser was required to pay Jet Rescue's usual and customary rate. The key issue was whether the administrative review process required for provider disputes of traditional Medicare claims under Part A and B applied to disputes between a provider and a Medicare Advantage plan under Part C. For Parts A and B, the Medicare Act establishes five levels of administrative review. First, an initial determination by the Medicare Administrative Contractor. Second, a redetermination by the Medicare Administrative Contractor. Third, a reconsideration by a qualified independent contractor. Fourth, a hearing before an administrative law judge if the amount in controversy is $100 or more. And fifth, a review by the Medicare Appeals Council. If a provider remains dissatisfied, the provider may then seek review from the Secretary of Health and Human Services. If a provider does not exhaust the foregoing process and files suit in court, the court lacks the jurisdiction to review the denial. The Ninth Circuit concluded that the same administrative exhaustion requirement applied to disputes with Medicare Advantage plans. Because Jet Rescue did not complete all five levels of appeals and did not submit the dispute to the Secretary, the court held that Jet Rescue had not exhausted its administrative remedies and it dismissed the case. So based on the Ninth Circuit's decision, providers should ensure that they comply with the administrative process when disputing denials or underpayments from non-contracted Medicare managed care plans. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Karen. That was healthcare attorney Karen George. Karen is with the law firm of Bookalter. Today, Dr. Moffick reports on two subjects, both of which are related, burnout, which of course comes during National Suicide Awareness Month, and the National Depression Month, which is in October, a couple of days from now. So Dr. Moffick, you have an update on burnout, which ironically comes during the National Suicide Awareness Month, which is now, and then a report on depression, of course recognizing that the National Depression Month is in October, a couple of days from now, so you've got a lot to talk about. Sure do, Chuck. And actually, there's one other special mental health focus for September, but no spoiler uh, until the end when I will include it. Now, we are approaching a transition from summer to fall, and as you say, from suicide to depression in terms of education and awareness. Actually, when you think about cause and effect, Depression Month 
should come before suicide month because untreated depression is the leading cause of suicide. Well, not really always, for suicide often causes prolonged grief and depression in the loved ones left behind. Got it? But in depression, we can easily go, excuse me, in discussion, we can easily go backwards. So let's start with suicide awareness. Most suicides are a result of untreated depression with associated loneliness, anxiety, and hopelessness. This would even include medical-assisted death by suicide in the location where that is allowed. The good news is that suicide is rare and preventable. Since the actual intent and action to die is often impulsive, it could be interrupted by the concern of others. That especially includes primary care physicians because often the patient who suicides has seen their doctor not long before the action. But everybody should be beware because the person often keeps their suicidal thoughts to themselves. Be especially concerned when, one, someone worsens after an antidepressant has started, since that may be from the side effect of restlessness. Two, if a depressed person suddenly looks much better for no apparent reason, as they might feel relieved by their suicide decision. Three, command auditory hallucinations may be telling the patient to not trust others. Now, turning to depression, clinical depression needing treatment is present in at least 10% of the population at any given time. In its classic presentation, it's fairly easy to recognize. Worsening sadness, worsening functioning, poor sleep, and decreased appetite over days to weeks. However, other presentations make it more difficult as influenced by age, culture, and gender, for instance. One, children and adolescents often act out with anger when depressed. Two, those of Hispanic and Asian cultural background tend to have somatic symptoms like aches, tiredness, and headaches, for which there's no other explanation. Three, in the elderly, memory gets more impaired. Four, postpartum psychotic symptoms are also present. And five, seasonal affective disorder, or the winter blues, is best treated by certain kinds of life, and maybe we'll get back to that a little later in the fall. As is now the case with anxiety, primary care physicians should be screening for depression, say with a PHQ-9 questionnaire. As far as treatment goes, the standards are cognitive behavioral psychotherapy and the variety of antidepressants. However, for those who don't improve transmagnetic stimulation as well as the life-saving electroconvulsive treatment may be necessary. Promising are the psychedelics, and ketamine is becoming more widely available and can be quickly helpful. You may have noticed that President Biden is relaunching the cancer moonshot started in 2016. I would say that we also need a mental health one because anxiety, depression, trauma, substance abuse, and suicide have all been increasing. After the old, still popular song titled Blue Moon, I'd recommend a mental health blues moonshot to speed the understanding and treatment of the inner space of our brains. In the meanwhile, remember that this month is also Friendship Month, and our friends are essential to help prevent or recover from depression and suicidality. Thank them before September is over. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Steve. That was nationally prominent psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Chuck? You're listening to the 524th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Attention coding professionals and all HIM professionals. Important coding information is available now on demand. It's the 2023 IPPS Coding Summit. 
Listen and learn during this exclusive three-part summit now available on demand. It features coding expert Lori Johnson with analysis by Dr. Erica Reamer. Learn about the 2023 changes associated with the IPS, including new ICD-10-CM and PCS codes, plus insights, analysis, and answers to questions. Download your on-demand version of all three sessions available now at the ICD-10 Monitor Bookstore. And returning once again with our popular series on the 2023 EM code updates is senior healthcare consultant Colleen Deegan. And good morning, Colleen. Good morning, Chuck. And good morning to everyone listening in today. Um, as Chuck mentioned, this week my segment on the EM changes highlights the changes that the AMA has made to consultation services. Consultations um, are currently divided into two subcategories within the EM section of CPT. There's office and other outpatient consultations and inpatient consultations. And both have currently subcategories divided into five different levels of service. As defined by the AMA's CPT book, a consultation is a type of evaluation and management service provided at the request of another physician, other qualified healthcare professional, or appropriate source to recommend care for a specific condition or problem. The biggest revision to the consultation E&M category, as with all the categories undergoing revision for 2023, is that the three key components that we all know so well, the history, the exam, and the medical decision-making, are no longer required for reporting these services. Um, In 2023, a medically appropriate history and physical, as determined by the physician, or APP should be documented, but the level of service will be determined solely by the level of medical decision-making or by time. And the AMA has redefined what time includes for selection of level service. It's now the total time on the date of the encounter, and that includes both face-to-face time and non-face-to-face time. And the statements around 50% of the time spent on coordination of care or counseling are also um, eliminated from the determination of time. So for both categories, uh, the level one E&M, which is 99241 for office or other outpatient services, and then 9251 for inpatient services has been deleted. And additionally, similar to the combining, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, of inpatient and observation care services, into one E&M category, the inpatient consultation subcategory title now has been revised to include consultations performed on observation patients. A little confusing. <laughs> uh, in many practices, um, it's the physician or the APP. We see this, um, you know, across the U.S., big and small organizations, practices. It's the physician or the APP who's doing the coding and the billing of their services. And this is where it can get tricky. And this is where I think, you know, our job as coding professionals really understanding and communicating the consultation guidelines that are part of the CPT book is so important to accurate claim submission. So in addition to defining what a consultation is within the guidelines, the guidelines also clarify that a physician or what they refer to as a qualified healthcare professional, which I I call an advanced practice provider, they can initiate diagnostic and or consultative services at the same or subsequent visit. So they can order, initiate, begin testing. They also state that a consultation initiated by a patient or a family member is not a consultation. 
and is not reported using the consultation coach. I know, I know my own experience, that's very confusing to physicians and often, um, you know, the misrepresentation of consultations. Uh, and, and as stated in the past, the consultation's opinion and any services that they ordered or performed must be communicated by written report to the requesting physician, qualified healthcare professional, or appropriate source. I think they also clarify in the guidelines something important, which is for follow-up visits. Um, and the follow-up visits, they state, should be reported using either the established patients in the home or office or, or residents or the subsequent consultation services, consultation services um, using subsequent um, inpatient and observation care codes. So really clarifying the first visit and then the visits that occur after the first visit. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that back in 2010, CMS released policy stating that consultation codes would no longer be accepted for Medicare Part B payments. A few years prior to 2010, the Office of Inspector General, the OIG, had identified that consultations were an area of potential concern with Medicare uh, regarding overpayment. Um, they stated that they felt that CMS was inappropriately paying for consultations. CMS did try to do some instruction, some Medicare Learning Network articles. They attempted to clarify the appropriate use of consultations. It created additional confusion within the physician community, within the CPT editorial panel of the AMA. There was also, uh, between the Medicare administrative contractor, they had various rules, um, definitions varied on the term transfer of care. Um, and disagreement, you know, in general within the physician community around how, how consultations should be handled. So that was the big driver, although is the confusion, the overpayment concerns is why CMS really stopped covering consultations, at least that category. They didn't say consultations don't occur, but that they don't get paid utilizing those those particular E&M codes. And of course, since then, we've seen many commercial payers align with CMS and no longer recognize or reimburse for consultation codes. I think um, I've seen many different ways healthcare organizations, physician practices address the coding of consultation services. Um, I, I feel, you know, when you look at it, a consultation is a recognized service by the AMA. It is an E&M category within the CPT book. Um, I instruct typically physicians and providers to be agnostic to payer policy and code consultation services with the consultation E&M codes and allow folks like myself and a lot of listeners in the coding and revenue cycle professionals to really support our physicians and our, and our APPs by editing those codes when appropriate for claim submission based on payer policy. And with that, back to you, Erica. Hey, Colleen, I have a question for you. So the yes, rules about what you need to be able to do a consultation, um, you know, having to have uh, someone request it in writing and then mm -hmm. having to give a report, um, if you're not using a consultation code like for Medicare, do you still have to follow those same rules? That's a good question because those are AMA rules that sit within the guidelines of a, um, you know, within within that particular CPT code range. So uh, that's a very good question. I would say uh, it could be interpreted different ways. And, and so, I think most people yeah. do. In the report, um, you know, like, does it have to be a formal separate report or can it be in the chart, like if it's, it's inpatient? Yeah, I think because we see so much of a shared medical record, right, too, within practices and, and care, um, 
typically uh, you see a separate written report still being done. Um, you know, however that gets submitted, particularly when it's an outside physician, but, you know, recognizing that it could be part of the, you know, the electronic medical record is, is considered a written report as well. Thanks, Colleen. Mm-hmm. That was Colleen Deegan. Colleen is Senior Healthcare Consultant for 3M Health. Chuck? Thank you, uh, Dr. Erica Reamer, and thank you, Colleen Deegan, very much. Be sure to read Colleen's reports on the 2023 E&M Code Updates. We're carrying her series in the ICD-10 Monitor. You can read her report on consultation services in today's edition. Now, here's Dr. Erica Reamer with our very famous and popular segment called Talk Back. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thank you, Chuck. Well, I am approaching retirement age. I have accumulated a bit of knowledge about documentation, ICD-10, and CDI, and I feel like I shouldn't take it with me. Many of you have shared sentiments that you appreciate how I explain things in a clear fashion. This has led me to starting to write a book with my observations, thoughts, and explanations on many topics. One of the subjects which I tackled recently is rather timely. Today's talkback will reflect what I know about influenza. When patients used to tell me proudly that they never took the flu shot, I would comment, you've never had the flu, have you? The answer was invariably no, because if they had ever had influenza before, they would never want to have it again. The myalgias, the muscle aches, are so severe, you feel like you've been run over by a truck. When people gripe that they had the flu shot, but got the flu anyway, I try to explain how that works. The folks making the next year's flu vaccines try predicting which strains will be circulating. Sometimes they are spot on, and sometimes they miss the mark. There are two basic seasonal flu types which we human beings get, influenza A and B. There are two main surface proteins or antigens called hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. Oh my God, I'm having trouble pronouncing it. Okay, neuraminidase. The different varieties of these proteins are what give those alphanumeric designations for influenza A, like A, H3N2. They try to predict which combinations of viruses will cause next season's disease and create a vaccine containing two subtypes of influenza A and two of B. Flu viruses evolve. Most of the time, there are subtle changes, and previous infection or vaccination still affords some protection. Influenza A, however, sometimes makes giant leaps called antigenic shift. It often results from some animal flu virus jumping into the human population. We may never have seen anything like it and may have no protection from it. These are the viruses which usually cause pandemics. Novel viruses typically come from birds in the influenza world. Bird flus are often more virulent and more dangerous than flus which come into our sphere from pigs. Swine flu is referred to as variant but it may also be new to us humans. New is bad because we have no built-in immunity. There are three categories of influenza codes. Let's start with J10. Influenza due to other identified influenza virus. This is typical seasonal influenza A or B. The provider may either have a positive test at their disposal or they may just decide they know what it is from, from what is circulating in the population. If they declare, quote, influenza A, close quote, 
you use a J10 code. If a patient has a novel, variant, swine, or bird flu, again, either by testing or documentation, you use J09, influenza due to certain identified influenza viruses. If the provider isn't sure what kind, but documents conclusively it is influenza, J11, influenza due to unidentified influenza virus is the correct designation. There is a twist on the uncertain diagnosis rule. If a provider documents probable swine flu, you have to use J11, not J09. The last piece is a combination with the manifestations, such as with pneumonia, encephalopathy, myocarditis, or gastrointestinal manifestations. If the provider doesn't explicitly link a documented manifestation, you would still be permitted to pick it up according to the WITH rule. Obviously, if there is co-infection, like a secondary bacterial infection or co-infection with COVID-19, another code would be indicated to specify. Sepsis from influenza is coded with A41.89, other specified sepsis, even though that would seem to be for a bacterial infection. We are instructed to use A41.89 for viral sepsis. Don't be like my patients I mentioned before. Get your flu vaccine, preferably early. I've already gotten mine. And brandish your Z23 and counter for immunization proudly. Wear a mask when traveling during flu season. If you haven't gotten your COVID-19 vaccinations and boosters, especially the bivalent one, do so. Stay healthy and safe, my friends. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very, very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 524th live edition of Talk Dead 2C. And I want to thank our panelists today, Timothy Powell, Lori Johnson, Karen George, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, and Colleen Deegan, who reported our lead story. And a special thanks to my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk Dead 2C broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Tuesday. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.